Love is it. Love is the pinnacle of Christian living. And so I'm glad that Charlie's picking up on that and teaching us about that because it is. It's what Jesus say. What are the greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God and love people. And God's easy because he's awesome, but people's hard. But God doesn't call us to do anything that he's not going to empower us to do. So it's something we can all do. But today, we're just going to start off this sermon. It's about the Ark of the Covenant and how it compares to Jesus Christ. But it's, it does have to do with love in the fact that Old Covenant, New Covenant. The wrath of God versus the love of God. And so I'm going to start by just telling two stories. And they're both Bible stories. But if you can just get this picture. David has just conquered pretty much all of the enemies that he needs to conquer to actually rule. He's been made king. He's, he's conquered Jerusalem. He has the city of David. He has his city. And so he says to the people... Let's go get the Ark of the Covenant. Because the whole time Saul was king, Saul never inquired at the Ark of the Covenant. He never went and asked God anything. He only relied on the prophets that God sent to him. And so you see David saying no one has inquired through the whole days of Saul. So let's go get the Ark of the Covenant. And so they go out to get the Ark of the Covenant that's in this really hard to pronounce place. And they go and get it, but they try to transport it. But the way they transport it is not according to the law. They put it on a cart instead of having priests take it. And so you're literally looking at this giant congregation of people because he went and got people, the Jewish people, from the top of Israel all the way to their border with Egypt. So there's a lot of people there. And so they have the ark and they have it on a cart and they're all playing music and they're all, you know, shouting and dancing and they're all excited. And the ox are pulling the cart along and one of the ox stumbles and the ark starts to fall. And Uzzah is with someone else. They're driving the cart. They're the ones in charge of doing it. So I'm pretty sure it's a pretty important job. You're the people that are getting, you know, you're... You're managing the ox and the cart. He sticks out his hand and he touches the ark. And God strikes him dead. Freaks David out. He leaves the ark right there. He doesn't bring it into Jerusalem until years later. But freaks him out because he touched the ark. It killed Uzzah. And you see the wrath of God because he touched something he wasn't allowed to touch. The ark represented the presence of God on earth. And in the wall... No one was allowed to touch it. Only once a year was a priest allowed to go in and sprinkle blood upon the mercy seat. So my next story is, we're talking about the presence of God, and our next story is, there's a woman. Everybody knows the story of the woman with the issue of blood. So for 12 years, she's had an issue of blood. She's, it says in Luke that she lost all, everything she owned to physicians, but didn't get any better, but grew worse. And so she pushes through a crowd of people. It says, when Jesus asked, who touched me, 
Peter's like, what do you mean who touched you? There's about 50 million people pushing on you right now. Everybody's touching you. But Jesus perceived that power had left him. So someone touched him in faith. So this woman touches Jesus, which is the presence of God on earth. And old covenant, you touch the presence of God, you die. New covenant, you touch the presence of God and you're healed. You live. And so we want to see that these, there's just beautiful comparisons about the Old Testament temple and how it relates to New Testament life. It's a picture of it. It says in Hebrews that everything that Moses made, it said, make it, make it as I showed you in the mountain. So pretty much it's, a, it's, a, it's an earthly representation of a heavenly truth, a, a spiritual heavenly truth sanctuary and so as we see that and we see that these uh represent the two different cover covenants and that they are they are pictures of each other in hebrews 9 18 verse 20 it talks about the covenant and how everything is established in a covenant with the shedding of blood So Moses sanctified the first tabernacle with blood. Jesus sanctifies the second, the spiritual, the heavenly tabernacle, the real deal, with his own blood. But in Hebrews 9.18 it says, Therefore, not even, even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. So the first thing I want you to understand, that covenants are always sanctified by blood. Because God, when God makes a promise, he, He's legit about making His promises. When you think about Abraham, when, when God made the covenant with Abraham, He made Abraham fall into a deep sleep. And back in the day, when you were making a covenant with someone that you weren't going to break, you would sacrifice animals, you would split them in two, you'd put one on one side, one on the other, and you and the person that you're making the covenant with would walk through the midst of these sacrificed animals as a testimony to the fact that, you know, you're going to keep your bargain and they're going to keep their half of the bargain. But but God caused Abraham to fall asleep and Abraham has a dream of the smoking candle thing going through the middle of the split open animals. So really it's a picture of the fact that even in Abraham's covenant with God, God was the only one in the middle of it. God was going to, withhold, God was going to hold up both ends of the bargain. It didn't have anything to do with Abraham. Abraham didn't have to uphold an end of the bargain other than have faith. And so that becomes a picture of our relationship with God. We don't have to uphold an end of the bargain. God has done the work for us. But like I said, every covenant that you see is sanctified with blood. And what I want you to see about that sanctified with blood is that it is established. It's more than just a word. It's more than, hey, I promise I'm going to do this. It is a covenant. It is a legit covenant. It is something that's unbreakable. If you go to all the trouble of sprinkling something with blood, killing something to sprinkle and make this covenant, you know, 
very forcefully make this covenant legitimate with the blood of animals, it means you're really serious about it. So I want you to understand that God's covenant, because it was, because it was sanctified with blood, is way more than just God giving his word. God's not going to break his word, but he goes beyond just, hey, you know, I promise I'm going to do this. He's legitimately, forcefully establishing something that's never going to be broken. And so as we see this, and we see that the, the heavenly and the natural were both sanctified with blood, one by the blood of Jesus, other by the blood of goats, and we see how these covenants are unbreakable, or these covenants are, are long, or these covenants are just way more than what we can even comprehend. Like, you can't even comprehend how serious God's covenant nature is is and so we see the ark of the covenant and so what i want to see want you to see is that the ark of the covenant was the focal point of israel's religion it was the focal point it was the presence of god he spoke he even tells them i'm going to speak from in the middle of these the cherubims that are on top of it and so we're just going to read real fast this picture of the ark of the covenant and I'm going to tell you how that relates to Jesus Christ. So in Exodus 25:10, and this is God giving the instructions, and he says, "And they shall make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits in length and two and a half cubits in width, and a cubit and a half in height, and you shall overlay it with pure gold." from inside and from outside and you're going to make moldings of gold so it's going to have like pretty decorations of gold on the outside of it he said you're going to make poles that you're going to overlay with gold you're going to put them in the hooks or you're going to put them in the rings and that is and you shall put the ark of the testimony which i will give you and it says and so he's like telling them he's going to put where they're going to put the ark and you shall make a mercy seat of pure Gold. So everything else was wood overlaid with gold, except for the mercy seat, which is pure gold. He says, And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them at two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherubim at one end and the other at the other end. And you shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it one piece with the mercy seat and the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above covering the mercy seat with their wings and they shall face one another the faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark and in the ark you shall put the testimony which i will give you so you're literally like inside the ark is the broken tablets of the Ten Commandments that Moses, that God had written, and Moses smashed when he came down and saw the people in idolatry. But that's in there. There's a bowl of, there's a golden bowl of manna in there, and then there's Aaron's rod that budded. And it says right here, this is the important part, and it says, There I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are the ark of the testimony about everything that he's going to command. So you're looking at the fact that this is the presence of God on earth. And I want you to, to, to take that and understand that this isn't just like a temple decoration. 
this is the most important thing they have. This is the presence of God. They, they worshiped before this thing. They sacrificed animals before this thing. Wherever this thing was, the blessing was. Wherever this thing was, the battle was won. Wherever the ark was, because it represents the presence of God. And so the cool thing is that all of these things point to Jesus. Acacia wood represents humanity in the Bible. The actual Hebrew word for it comes from the fact that they were trees with thorns. And so you're talking about humanity. I mean, what, what, what do thorns represent? They represent the curse that came upon mankind. But it was overlaid with gold, and gold always represents divinity. So you see a picture right there of Jesus Christ being man and God. He is earthly and divine. The mercy seat, though, is solid gold. It is totally divine. And so that speaks to the fact that God's mercy is beyond human mercy. It's not wood and gold, it's just gold. God's mercy goes way further and deeper than our mercy does. Our mercy usually has a point. Like, you're going to be real merciful towards someone that's poor and steals a loaf of bread. You're not so merciful towards, you know, Bernie Madoff who's rich and decides to steal even more money from people. See, our mercy has a limit. God's mercy is divine. It has no limit to it. So like I said before, what it covered, what the mercy seat covered, was the broken law. And I think that's it's perfect. It's just like the most, it's like the perfect picture of what God's mercy really has to do. It didn't cover the intact law that we were all keeping. It covered the broken tablets of the law because they didn't keep it for five minutes. As soon as Moses had it and brought it down from the mountain, they had already broke it. And so that just shows God's mercy towards our sin, that that's what the mercy seat covers. It also covers Aaron's staff that budded, which was the proof that Aaron was the chosen priesthood because there was a question about it, that it was going to come through Aaron's line, this chosen priesthood. Well, what was the priesthood? Well, they complained about the priesthood all the time. They didn't listen to the priesthood. The priesthood failed. The priesthood was, was natural man. The priesthood was jacked up, and they had temple prostitutes and all other kind of things going on in the temple at different points during the life of the temple. And so again, that shows that mercy covers that fallible nature of even what we lift up as priests, as servants to God. And then it covers the bull of manna. And so if you know anything about manna, that's heavenly provision. That's a representation of heavenly provision. And you know what they did with that bowl of manna or they did with that manna? They complained about it all the time. They were mad about it. They ate angels' food and it wasn't good enough. They wanted quail. And so if you look at this picture of the Ark of the Covenant and what it's covering, it's covering the fact that we break the Ten Commandments, that we don't listen to the priesthood, and the priesthood isn't even that great in the first place, and we don't recognize or appreciate God's provision. We need mercy for all of that stuff. I mean, there was a, on the Day of Atonement, the one-time priests were allowed to go in there, 
they, they sprinkled blood on it, and all of Israel came and rejoiced because that was like the one time a year, hey, all of our sins are covered. God's good with us. This is, you know, a joyous celebratory experience for them because they understood that once that blood was on the mercy seat, that they were good for another year, that God was going to be merciful towards all of their sin. And it really speaks to the new covenant that's talked about in Isaiah. You know, I, I'll, I'll bring a new covenant, it says. I'll write my law on their hearts, and it says I will be merciful to their transgressions or their sin. That that's, that's the key to the new covenant of grace is the fact that God is merciful to our sin, merciful to our transgressions, merciful to when we go wayward. And so we see that that mercy covered all of it, everything we could ever mess up in. And so when we see those parallels and we see that they serve as a copy and a shadow of what was to come, which is the, the spiritual, the spiritual sanctuary. It says in Hebrews 8, 5, and 6, it says, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you in the mountain, but now he has obtained, and it's talking about Jesus, a more excellent ministry insomuch as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which is established on better promises. So although this was a picture, it wasn't perfect. It was like an earthly picture. It was a man-made picture of what God was going to bring about through Jesus Christ. And so we have these copies that we can see and, and research and read about and understand, but the heavenly is superior. So that was all just like a big, giant, long intro pretty much because I want you to understand some, some truths about the Ark of the Covenant so that we can get down to what God really put on my heart, which was what's important is the differences in approaching the ark, approaching the presence of God. So in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, based on the law, based on, you know, the Old Covenant based on law, there were very specific rules to how you approached the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant. The priest came once a year, but he couldn't just go in. He had to offer a sacrifice for his sin before he could go in and offer a sacrifice for the people's sin. It was such a fearful and serious thing, they tied a rope around the guy. Because if he went in unsanctified, he was going to die, and that way they could pull him out and go bury him. It was so serious, there's laws about the... I mean, it got down to the fact that if you walked in the presence of God with dirt under your fingernails you were going to die. That it was very specific about how you had to measure up to a certain standard before you could enter in to the presence of God. Just like we said about uh, Uzzah and when David brought the thing. They were supposed to be, the priests were supposed to be carrying it and it wasn't supposed to be on a cart. No one was ever supposed to touch it but the priest, and they actually didn't touch it. They just touched the poles that went through the loops, and they picked it up. And so this guy touches it, and you're talking about 
I mean, could there be a more innocent, like, mistake? Like, he's not the king. He didn't tell him to put it on a cart. It's not his fault that they put it on a cart. It's definitely not his fault that the ox stumbled. And you're, you're thinking, like, if there's a point where God should have had mercy, why didn't God have mercy on this guy? And you're talking about different covenants, but he touched it, unlawfully touched the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, and he died. God's wrath was kindled against him. And you take that picture and you see that you had to measure up before you could ever even get close to the presence of God. And you look at the new covenant. You look at the grace covenant. You look at what God brought about through Jesus Christ. And we're going to read the story of, of the woman with the issue of blood real fast. So go to Luke chapter 8. We'll start in verse 42, but we'll start at the end of it where it says, The multitudes thronged him. So that's the first thing I want you to understand. There was people touching him. There was people all around him. And it says, Now a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years, who had spent her livelihood on physicians and could, and could not be healed by any, came from behind and touched the border of his garment. So I want you to understand here. Women with a flow of blood, which I'm sure you all understand what that means, were not lawfully allowed to go out in public. If they touched you, you were ceremonially, ceremonially or, or, or you were unclean. You were considered unclean. Like you had to go wash your clothes and wash your body and all these other things. And so you're talking about she is unlawfully in a crowd of people. Like she wasn't, by the law... By the Levitical law, she wasn't allowed to be out. Think about how many people she touched on the way to get to Jesus that she literally was making unclean by her unlawful act of coming out with a flow of blood and coming out into public. And so you see this picture where Uzzah touches it and gets wrath. This woman unlawfully, unclean, touches Jesus, the presence of God, and she isn't struck dead. I mean, Uzzah's was an honest mistake. This woman legitimately knows that everything she's doing is wrong and unlawful. But she touches Jesus, and she's healed. And that just shows you this, this picture that it's not the same covenant. That this is, that God is not wrathful and angry or, or wanting you to measure up before you come into his presence. If we were under the same covenant, when the veil tore, everybody on earth should have died because you're all of a sudden, everyone's in the presence of God now. But because of Jesus coming and showing the true nature of God, you, you, get, you, you flip it on end. That God is literally saying to us and saying to people, come to me unclean. Come to me unworthy. Come to me unlawfully. That God's not worried about how you approach him. God's not worried about how people approach him because God is showing the fact that coming to him is what fixes your problem, not trying to fix your problems before you come to him. And so in church, we kind of get this picture of 
we hear sermons, we hear what God expects, we hear, you know, the standards of God, we hear about love, we hear about all these things, and we, we set these bars real high, and what we want to do is measure up to that. We want to do an Old Testament way of approaching God. We want to measure up to before we go into the presence of God, and that's completely wrong and 180 degrees off of what New Testament grace is all about. God wants you to come to Him as you are because His presence is the only thing that can change you into what you want to be in the first place to go into the presence of God. It's 180 degrees off of the law. The law killed you when you came in the presence unworthy. God fixes you when you come in His presence unworthily. When you've messed up, when you've slipped, when you are in sin, when you are absolutely disgusting in every single way. Like, let's just go that far. When you're the worst person in the whole world, what's going to fix you is to come boldly before the throne of grace where you can receive mercy and help in a time of need. And so this becomes this beautiful picture of God's love. He's not judging you. He's not wrathful towards you. And I know like a lot of people are like, you know, this sounds like liberal, gracie theology, and it's not liberal, gracie, just keep sinning theology. It is get into the presence of God where He can fix you of your wrong desires, of your wrong actions. That in the presence is where you want to be, but what happens is the devil puts shame upon us, the devil puts condemnation upon us, and we run from the presence of God instead of coming into the presence of God where our answer is we run from it because we feel ashamed we feel dirty we 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 don't want to be in the presence of God we run from church because we feel bad or we feel dirty or we feel whatever we feel condemned and God wants us to do the exact opposite when you're at your dirtiest you need to run to God faster when you can't get over a certain sin, you need to be in the presence of God more. You shouldn't run from it. You shouldn't hide from it. It's not Old Covenant anymore. He's not going to strike you dead. He's going to clean you up. And it just it's, it's amazing how many Christians hear that, kind of know that in their head, but in their heart, they don't get it. They don't come into the presence of God. They avoid the presence of God when, they're, when they fall into sin or they fall into anything. They run from it because they're scared that God's still that old covenant God. And He's not. He brought about a new covenant through Jesus Christ where the unlawful, the, the, the ugly, the sinful get to come to the presence of God and become beautiful because that's the only place you're going to become beautiful. Because if you want to know the truth, it didn't matter if they sacrificed a goat or not, or a cow or whatever, to come into the presence of God. That was all just a shadow of the blood of Christ. It says in Hebrews that the, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. It never had the ability to do it. God was just honoring it and showing us a picture of how we were going to come into the presence of God, which was by the blood of Christ. And so we want to be there. We want to get into the presence of God more. This is really what God spoke to my heart is that we need to 
we need to foster that presence more. That especially, it, it can't just be a Sunday thing that you come into the presence of God. It has to be an everyday event. I mean, if you want to know the truth, you walk in the presence of God because he's inside of you. But we need to foster that idea. We need to build up that consciousness in our mind that we are in the presence of God. And, and worship is the way to do that. You shouldn't wake up every morning and like scroll through Facebook, which you know I'm going to admit that I do sometimes. Like I need to wake up every morning and praise God and read the Word and pray because I want in that presence. And when you don't feel worthy, that's the perfect time to run into that presence. It's, it's the exact opposite. I mean, men want to earn their position with God. I mean, that's never changed. You look at every single religion in the whole world, including a lot of Christianity, people want to feel like they've earned their position before the presence. And the truth is you can never earn your position before the presence. That God's too holy. The holiest person you know standing on his own merit, would be struck dead just like Uzzah when he touched the ark. Because no one's good enough to stand before God. But by grace, we're all good enough to stand before God. It's like the most beautiful thing in the whole world. That's the love of God. That's the love that God has shed abroad in our hearts. That we are able to come into the presence even when we're sinful. And that's not, hey, continue to be sinful. That's no, get in the presence because it will fix you of your sinfulness. That that's what it does. The presence of God drives out darkness. And so whatever darkness you have, don't hide it from God. Stick it right in front of God. Whatever doubts, fears, and unbelief you have, don't hide them from God. Stick them right in front of God because they'll dissipate. They'll fall away. They'll, they'll run and hide from that glorious light of God's presence. But the way to enter into that presence is by faith. It's by faith we're saved through grace, but it's by faith that we enter into that presence. You want to know why she touched God and was healed? He said, your faith has made you whole. We have to, by faith, come boldly before the throne of grace. I mean, when it says that in Hebrews, when it talks about come boldly before the throne of grace, I mean, that's like the complete opposite of how they came before the mercy seat. They didn't come boldly. They came sheepishly and checking under their fingernails and making sure the rope was tinged, you know, tightened so that someone could pull them out if they were dead and at least their family would be able to bury them. Like it wasn't boldly. They didn't throw open the veil and walk in and be like, hey God. You know, they came with, I mean, it sounds like unhumbly how we're supposed to come before God, but it says come boldly. It doesn't say come humbly. It says come boldly. God, humility is kind of misinterpreted as 
You know, like, oh, I'm a dirty dog and I shouldn't come before the presence of God and, you know, God forgive me of this and this and this and this because I'm awful. That's not humility. Humility is exalting God to the position where God is, which is your only help and the only thing you need and what you want to get to. And you can come boldly before God in a humble way. And that's exalting Him to the position. Like, it's not, oh, I'm not worthy to come into your presence. It's, oh, because of you and your blood sacrifice, I am worthy to come into your presence. That's elevating God to His position and lowering yourself to needing Him as opposed to, you know, feeling unworthy and not able to come into the presence of God. You at your dirtiest, like, is able to come into the presence of God because of what he did. And that's humility. That's the, an unhumble person tries to earn their way to God. A humble person boldly goes before God. Anytime and every time and all the time. Because they understand he did the work. Like you have people that look super humble. I mean like... Saul to the earth, you know, you know, I'm nothing, God's everything, like blah, 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 who aren't humble because they're trying to earn their way to God. Because they're, through religion, you know, dress a certain way, look a certain way, act a certain way, you know, talk a certain way, and they're not humble. They're prideful. They're trying to earn their way to God. And then you have people that are like, would make you uncomfortable with like, what's wrong with them but they're actually humble because they want to run to the presence of God. I mean, it's like, you know, most churches, if a prostitute walked in and walked up to the altar, everyone would be like, oh my gosh, you know, like, what does she think she's doing? Look how she's dressed. Like, that kind of attitude where we're judging by the outside. But that's what God wants. That's humility. It's just coming to God as you are is what he wants for us because he is the answer to what's wrong with you as opposed to trying to figure out what's wrong with you before you come there. He wants you to come there messed up because he will fix you. And that's, and that's just the picture. That's, we need to judge our hearts and see which covenant we're elevating because a lot of us with lots of years of Bible knowledge are elevating the Old Covenant approach to God. Where we want to look good and we want to elevate our efforts, our work, what we've done, what we know, you know, how clean we think we keep ourselves. And we want to elevate that work mentality before we come into the presence of God. We want to elevate what we've done. But we need to understand that it's a new covenant. That you, that you don't have to earn ways, a way into that presence. That Jesus Christ earned your way into that presence. I mean, the minute he died, the veil tore from the top to the bottom. If you want like historical truth of that, Joe... Josephus, sorry, who was a Jewish historian who wasn't a Christian, who just wrote about like the Roman times back then, wrote about the fact that the veil tore from the top to the bottom. I mean, that thing was interlaid with gold 
And literally, he, he actually says in his book that it would have taken like teams of horses to pull the thing apart because it was so thick and interlaid with gold. And it ripped from the top to the bottom. So there's historical truth to the fact that Jesus died on the cross and it ripped the veil from the top to the bottom. And that opened us, that opened the way to the presence of God, which is not a scary thing anymore. Back then, Old Covenant, it was a scary thing. Now, it's not a scary thing. Why? Because God poured out his wrath upon his own son because of your sin. And so there's no more wrath to pour out. There's a judgment to come. I mean, God talks, the Bible talks about, the New Testament talks about the judgment to come. But it talks about that judgment to come is whether you accepted Jesus or you didn't accept Jesus. That's the judgment to come. There's no like, well, that was a really dirty sinner and that wasn't too bad of a sinner. No, everybody. It's judged along one line. I mean, it's just, it's black and white. Receive Jesus, don't receive Jesus. That's it. That's heaven or hell. That's the answer to heaven or hell right there. Receive Jesus, don't receive Jesus. That's it. And so that judgment, that wrath on sin is gone. But there is still a judgment for whether or not you reject Jesus or not. And so we can come boldly before the throne of grace to receive help in our time of need. Because we all are there. We all have times of need. But God wants you to understand today that there is nothing separating you from his presence. Absolutely nothing. Like your sin is not separating you from his presence. His presence is the answer to your sin. Now, I, I, and I'm, I know like the gears in some people's heads are turning on, you know, that's being, that's not respectful to God. No, that's respecting what God did. He died for your sin. He suffered for your sin. To try and get clean before you come into the presence is not respecting what he did. He wants you in his presence because that is what will make sin become, you know, that's what will take the scales off your eyes so you see sin for what it really is. It's, it's a false promise. It doesn't give you what it says it's going to give you. It gives you a counterfeit of what God wants to give you. Sin is a counterfeit joy. And God wants you to have the real thing, and that joy is found in his presence. So you can stand. We'll just close with prayer today. Just thank you, Lord God. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word that is so deep. And I thank you, Lord God, for using my words, however imperfect, to touch the hearts of people so that they are more conscious of the fact that your presence is wide open for them. That when they are stressed or worried or fearful or, or sinful or angry or whatever they are that isn't you know, love, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit, whatever they are, that's when they need to run into your presence, not hide from your presence. Because there's no more wrath for their sin. It's covered by the blood. There is no more wrath for their dirty deeds because you paid the price. 
and therefore they can run into your presence and receive what they need. If they need freedom from sins that have held them long in bondage, God, let them run into your presence. If there's addictions that they can't get over, they don't need to solve the problem before they can come to you. They just need to come to you. You'll solve the problem for them. If there's worries and stress through every day, every day there's worries and stress that try to come upon us. But God, when worries and stress come, let us run into your presence. Let us lay it down at your altar. Let us be people that are very aware of the fact that God is in us and with us. That He overshadows us and indwells us. And that we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. And just let them freely walk in and out. With the goal of, hey, I'm going to get to the point where I just stay. Where I stay in that presence all the time. But let us just long for your presence. Because in your presence, Lord God, there is fullness of joy. Fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So I thank you, Lord God, for us having a, a right picture of who God is and what it is like to approach him. In the name of Jesus, amen.